Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 356th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. We know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning is my guest co-host, Holly Louie. Holly is the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association, and good morning. Holly, thanks very much for sitting in this morning for Dr. Erica Reamer. Thank you. Good morning, Chuck. Hello, everyone. Our lead story this morning is about distinguishing new patients from established patients. Now, as a compliance officer, you're probably very much aware this issue. Absolutely, Chuck, and it can be surprisingly confusing upon occasion. Just one of the many E&M things coming down the pike. Nationally recognized professional physician, coder, and auditor Terry Fletcher is standing by. She's going to report our lead story this morning. And speaking of codes, Laurie Johnson's back to report on the latest travel advisory, Yellow Fever. Well, I'm sure there is a code for Yellow Fever, especially since Laurie Johnson has that report. And also returning to Talk 10 Tuesday this morning is Rhonda Taller. Rhonda will be reporting on the latest regulations to come out of Washington. Today's a big day in New York. Dennis Jones is standing by to report on the continuing controversy in the great state of New York. Sepsis 2 versus Sepsis 3. Dennis is going to be with us later in the broadcast. We have much news to report today during Talk 10 Tuesday, and we begin with ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to a live webcast on E&M coding, complex coding issues and scenarios. It's tomorrow, January 13th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Save $25 using the coupon code TUESDAY. To register, click on the handout tab in today's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is Tim Powell. Hey, Chuck. We'd like to talk today a little bit about Medicare for All. What would it do to hospitals? Hospital CFOs tell us that Medicare does not pay as much as other payers and pay its fair share, and that Medicare for All would result in many hospitals closing. To answer whether this is true, we should start by going back in history. When Medicare started in 1966, the government reached out to the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association to come up with a way to determine what hospitals would be paid for treating patients. This was the first time anyone had paid anything but the charges that were actually charged by the hospital. Included in this analysis was the reality that Medicare made up a small sliver of patients. Blue Cross created a cost report. It was a simple computation of inpatient and outpatient costs that was divided by total patient days to get a cost per diem. This cost per day was multiplied by Medicare days to compute an allowable cost. For-process hospitals complained that they needed a profit margin, so Medicare created a return on equity factor. So nonprofits got cost, and for-profit hospitals got cost plus a return on equity. Medicare quickly figured out the sad truth. There wasn't enough money for Medicare. Medicare then decided to limit how much they paid for routine or room and board costs. They created a routine cost limit. They would pay ancillary inpatient and outpatient costs at cost, but limit inpatient costs for room and board. Just a few years into the 1980s, Medicare paid inpatient costs subject briefly to a per-discharge limit in order to uh, reduce the amount that was paid, and again, less than the actual cost that was incurred. Medicare stopped paying uh, return on equity factor, and then they implemented the prospective payment system, and all direct connection to costs were now gone. However you slice it, Medicare was now paying less than the cost for treating patients. If Medicare did not pay its fair share, then hospitals would have to make it up on other payers. This 
uh, coined the term cost shifting and the idea that other payers would make up for the fact that Medicare was not paying enough in order to keep the hospitals afloat. What about current data? We looked at current Medicare cost reports across the country. We compared only acute care hospitals. We took the net revenue that was reported on Worksheet G3 and divided by the total patient days from Worksheet S3 line 14. The result was an average net revenue of $5,947.42 per patient day. Then we decided to look at Medicare. We took Medicare payments from worksheets E Part A and E Part B. We added back coinsurance, which is very generous uh, on the side of Medicare. We then divided that amount by the number of Medicare days reported on worksheet S through the cost reports in order to determine how much Medicare was paying pay per patient day. The result was that Medicare was only paying $3,877.34. This means that Medicare is currently only paying about 65% of what it would have cost for hospitals to have the same amount of net revenue under Medicare for All. So in conclusion, any Medicare for All program will not have to contend with the truth that Medicare has not been paying its fair share of medical costs for decades. And in order to prevent hospitals from going bankrupt, not only are we going to have to cover Medicare for all, but we're going to have to increase the amount we pay for each Medicare patient. Anyways, thanks, Chuck, and back to you. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's February the 12th, 2019. President Abraham Lincoln was born on this day in 1809. But on this day, you're listening to the 356th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Here's an important money-saving announcement from the American Health Information Management Association, AHIMA. Listen closely. Are you looking for a reliable solution to answer your toughest coding questions? You need AHIMA's Code Check service. Unlike any other service, AHIMA's Code Check is unique in its ability to combine ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, CPT, and HCPCS classification systems into a single solution with one business day turnaround providing the industry with one location for expert coding support. Control access for staff members, build a library of solutions, share answers, upload supporting documentation, gain insight into knowledge gaps, and more. Learn how AHIMA's CodeCheck can benefit your organization at ahima.org slash CodeCheck and try it for as little as $55. Now's the time for Dateline Washington, featuring Tucked In Tuesday legislative analyst Rhonda Teller. Good morning, Rhonda. Hey, a lot of news is coming out of Washington these days. What do we need to know? Yes, Chuck, there certainly is. There is a lot of emphasis on drug prices, both from the executive branch, the Trump administration, and from Congress through some hearings. In the fall of 2018, a proposed rule came out asking for comments on posting list prices for drugs over $35 per month for those direct-to-consumer ads on TV. Then in late January, another proposed rule came out seeking comments to pass pharma rebates that are currently given to the pharmacy benefit manufacturers and passing those potentially on to Medicare beneficiaries in Part D. 
in a recent speech by Secretary Azar of Health and Human Services, he cited the potential for $29 billion in rebates that could be passed on to patients in Part D if this rule went into effect as of January 2020. Recently, there were hearings on drug prices in the Congress, both on the House side by House Oversight Chair Elijah Cummings out of Maryland and also on the Senate side by the Senate Finance Chair Senator Grassley. They both focused on the high cost of insulin to patients and high prices, drug prices overall, and you'll be hearing a lot more, I think, on that topic in the days to come. The administration is also signaling that they believe new payment models will be coming out this year from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Another focus area is on price transparency. Uh, not too long ago, uh, the on the Hospital Compare website, Hospital Charge Master list prices were posted. I think you'll see more focus on price transparency moving forward. Um, I want to also mention, very important, that the Healthcare Information Management Systems Society has their annual meeting going on in Florida, and it was the perfect opportunity for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology to release proposed rules. CMS has a interoperability and patient access proposed rule, and ONC put out a rule specifically related to exceptions for the information blocking provisions. Um, there are both fact sheets as well as the rules are on display. I believe the rule, the CMS rule, is over um, 900 pages. Um, I think you will also see within the CMS rule um, some requests for information. Um, that's something the current administration has been doing. They've been embedding this into existing rules. And the rule on the CMS side uh, has a number of things in there, uh, things like health, in, uh, health information exchange and care coordination across different um, payers for diagnostic, procedure tests, uh, and providers seen, um, care coordination through the use of the Trusted Exchange Network, um, information where frequency of federal state data exchanges for dual eligibles, that's Medicare and Medicaid recipients, um, going from a monthly to a daily uh, exchange, and much more. Um, so I will leave it there and toss it back to Holly. Thank you so much, Rhonda. That was Talk 10 Tuesday legislative analyst Rhonda Toller. Rhonda is a member of the HIMSS Professional Development Committee. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Holly, very much. And Rhonda, thank you so much for that report. Here now with the latest travel advisory about yellow fever is Lori Johnson. Lori has a Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. So, Lori, there is a code for yellow fever? There is. Last week we talked about cold weather diagnosis, and this week we'll talk about a public health concern that is based in warm weather. Washington, D.C. did issue a note about yellow fever in January 2019. The concern was about anyone traveling to South American countries of Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, French Guiana, Suriname, and Peru. Worldwide, yellow fever is a risk in 44 countries. This public health concern is a, an acute hemorrhagic fever, and it's viral. The mosquito transmits the disease. This is a serious disease that has three stages. Stage one is a headache, fever, joint aches, anorexia, vomiting, and jaundice, which lasts from three to six days. 
stage two, the patient's symptoms will lessen, so you think that you have gotten over it. But in stage three, organ dysfunction sets in, and the organ dysfunction affects the heart, the liver, and the kidneys, and this is when internal bleeding would start. Patients can die from this disease. If the patient continues to stage three, 50% of them will expire. The condition is diagnosed by lab tests. There is no cure for this disease. After a patient contracts it, the symptoms are treated. The the treatments include blood transfusions, hydrations, and dialysis. This condition is easily prevented with a vaccination. If you are traveling to these areas, make sure that you are vaccinated at least 10 to 14 days prior to your trip. Now to the coding part. Unspecified yellow fever, A95.9, but it can be further described as jungle or sylvatic, which is A95.0, or urban, which is A95.1. If you're presenting for your vaccination, then that would get code Z23, which is encounter for immunization. Just on another side, with regards to Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting, which is scheduled for March 5th and 6th of this year, if you are planning on attending in person, you must register by February 23rd, 2019. This is earlier than we've had to register before. The meeting is scheduled to be held at the CMS headquarters, which is 7500 Security Boulevard, Baltimore, Maryland. Back to you, Holly. Thank you so much, Lori, for that interesting report. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Thank you, uh, Holly, and uh, thank you very much, Lori. And you can read Lori's reporting on the subject in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Our lead story this morning is about the need to distinguish between new patients from established patients. Here to report on why this is important is nationally recognized professional physician, coder, and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. So as a consultant, I get asked a question a lot that you would think would have a very simple black and white answer. But in healthcare and the ever-evolving definitions and interpretations of the written rules, it seems like the simpler the question, the harder it can be to answer. So when we ask the question, is this a new or established patient, there's actually more than one answer to that question. The CPT book in their opening pages to the ENM services even tries to answer the question, but in doing so, they've added language that even asks more questions, not only to the provider, but to the patient. So traditionally, we know that a new patient is one who has not seen a physician or a physician of the same specialty within the same group within the past three years. But CPT and even Medicare decided to make the question even more confusing by adding questions like, is it the exact same specialty, the exact same subspecialty? And if we're asking this question to the patient, at some point the patient's going to look at the physician and think, don't you know, because I haven't seen you before. But not so fast. I wouldn't necessarily be a new patient. But think of this. So if you're a cardiology practice and one of your general cardiologists saw your patients for chest pain and shortness of breath in the hospital, then they came back to the practice within the same year and saw another cardiologist in your practice who also happens to perform maybe peripheral non-coronary procedures but is still a general cardiologist, is this new or established to that physician? Now, that is established because there's no clear designated subspecialty and the patient was seen with the practice within the past three years, and it doesn't matter where they were seen. 
But what if the patient came back to the practice within that year to see your electrophysiologist, or what we call EP physician, for an arrhythmia? Well, this is a subspecialty and even has its own taxonomy code with Medicare, meaning a special provider designate with Medicare. So this would be a new patient visit. But the patient just thinks they saw a cardiologist and they're not aware of the different subspecialties. So that's why you really need to be on top of it. I think my favorite question is when it comes to orthopedics. When a patient is seen by a general orthopod that is referred to the spine physician, well, this is a subspecialty that doesn't have a special taxonomy code, but that doesn't mean that there isn't an option for a new patient visit. The thing you want to ask yourself when you're actually looking at new versus established patient is was the patient transferred for care? That's a really good question because if one physician has determined the medical necessity, or I should say the medical decision-making for a patient, and now they're transferring them for a specific procedure or a specific treatment, then it would be hard to support a new patient visit because you have to meet three out of three criteria to capture that new patient visit code. And if that medical decision's already done for you, then you would have an established patient visit code per se. But if the patient was referred for, let's say, a lumbar laminectomy in that scenario, again, you'd have a hard time supporting it. But what if the patient was just referred for an evaluation of their back pain and that second physician had to determine what the patient needed, then you may have an argument for a new patient. And then the next question to consider was, was there face-to-face services prior to the patient being seen by the second physician? So let's say there was an EKG read for a patient seen in the hospital, but was never seen by an actual physician. Then they came into your practice a week later and saw the physician who did the EKG read. Is that new or established? Well, it would continue to be a new patient because there was not a face-to-face encounter on a prior occasion. So remember your definition, and that talks about solely for the purposes of distinguishing between new and established patients, professional services are those face-to-face services rendered by physicians or other qualified healthcare professionals who can report the E&M services using a specific code. And a new patient is one who has not received any of these professional services within the last three years. Also, an established patient is one who has received these services. And remember that when advanced practice nurses or PAs are working with physicians, they are also considered as working in the exact same specialty and subspecialty as the physician. The reasons for learning to distinguish between new and established patients, apart from coding guidelines, is that it enables you you to be reimbursed for the additional work that a new patient visit warrants. So we can argue in some cases, not distinguishing from new patients from established, can amount to shortchanging yourself. So, for example, a visit that produces a comprehensive history, a comprehensive exam, and medical decision-making of high complexity would qualify as a level five visit if it was established and also if it was new. But if you bill for an established visit when, in fact, it was a new patient visit, your loss of revenue would be about $60. So not only that, Medicare is now reimbursing for virtual visit check-ins and they use the HICPICS code G2012 for an established patient visit only, meaning that a physician or mid-level can take a call from a patient who is established to the practice and determine if they need to come in or not or treat them over what they call communication technology, phone call or video. If they need to come in for an appointment, you do not charge for it. If you can take care of it over the phone, it was not related to a recent visit within the past seven days or leading to an E&M service or a procedure in the next 24 hours, or soonest available appointment, then you can charge for it. But again, this is to be for a known established patient visit. Another biggest myth on the new versus established patient is when you have a patient that's known to you, but they haven't been seen for the past three years, and let's say they come in in three years and two months, and an established patient visit is charged. That's a huge revenue loss for the practice because, in effect, they're a new patient visit because of the time that's passed. 
So to make sure your EM services are maximized for their reimbursement and you're coding correctly, think about this question once again. Is this new or established patient? Holly, back to you. Thank you so much, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Holly, very much. And Terry Fletcher, thank you for an excellent report. You can read Terry's reporting on this very important topic in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Now, today's a big day in New York. Dennis Jones is here to report on the continuing controversy in the great state of New York, sepsis 2 versus sepsis 3. Good morning, Dennis. It is a big day, huh? This was to be an important day in terms of legislating the use of sepsis 3 criteria by insurance companies here in New York State. Uh, But as luck would have it, it is forecast to be the first snowy and stormy day of the year, at least here in the New York metro area. I've been trying to get confirmation that although all of our kids are home from school watching the Grammy highlights, our hospital associations and lawmakers are hashing out the meaning and application of sepsis criteria in the Empire State. Both the Greater New York Hospital Association and the Hospital Association of New York State were to meet with the New York Department of Health and the Department of Financial Services today to discuss health plans' continued use of the sepsis-3 definition when reviewing claims. As I reported here three weeks ago, these New York hospital associations were successful in convincing United Healthcare that it could not use the sepsis-3 criteria as it had announced in its October 2018 provider bulletin in the, in the New York State because the sepsis-2 definition was included in specific language in the state's healthcare regulations. A tragic incident in 2012, which resulted in the death of a young boy, inspired New York lawmakers to require specific reporting and data collection based on sepsis-2 criteria. New York State requires hospitals to have in place evidence-based protocols that stress the early recognition and treatment of patients with sepsis, septic shock, Uh, that are based on the generally accepted standards of care at the time. And at the time, sepsis-2 criteria were widely accepted for the purpose of identifying and treating sepsis. After UnitedHealthcare published its intent to use the sepsis-3 criteria in October of 2018, the two New York hospital associations sent a letter to the New York Department of Health and Department of Financial Services to remind them of the obligations of the current regulations. There were two key points that Greater New York Hospital Association and Hospital Association of New York State made to the New York Department of Health and Department of Financial Services. Number one was that sepsis-2 bases the recognition of sepsis on SERS criteria and therefore allows clinicians to consider a sepsis diagnosis much earlier in the advancement of the disease. And point number two was that, and I quote, We believe insurers that are adopting the sepsis-3 definition are doing so not for the purpose of improving the quality of care, but simply as a mechanism to downcode claims and reduce payments to providers. On January 3rd, uh, UnitedHealthcare conceded that it would not apply sepsis-3 to New York providers until such time as New York adopts the updated criteria. So the first battle of the use of sepsis-3 definitions is already won, and it would seem that the argument has application for all regulated insurers in the state. This excludes ERISA plans. They fall under the control of the Federal Department of Labor, not under the New York Department of Health. So it was the intent of the Greater New York Hospital Association and Hospital Association of New York State to make the same argument to the New York Department of Health and Department of Financial Services to reach the same end for all payers in in New York State. My own hospital, we continue to get sepsis denials from a number of payers. 
uh, both Medicaid managed care and commercial payers. But I hope to be able to share the outcome of today's hospital association slash DOH meeting that is scheduled for later today. And I had a call from the Department of Health just telling me that the meeting is still on for this afternoon as a conference call. So this will continue. I hope to have that update uh, later today, regardless of the horrible weather. Um, Chuck, didn't, didn't that groundhog in Pennsylvania see his shadow? You just can't put your faith in science these days. Thanks, Dennis, very much. That was Dennis Jones. Dennis is the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. One last item before we say goodbye today. We've asked Holly Louie for some thoughts on a health care issue that has captured her interest. Holly? Thank you, Chuck. I just recently read the 2018 Physician Foundation Physician Survey. It's a statistical survey that includes all specialties, all genders, all ages, all states, all types of practice. And the findings I thought were very sobering and very concerning. And it made me question, does CMS and the commercial payer world listen at all to what physicians have to tell them? So if we think about it at the start, to become a physician, that college, medical school, residency, fellowship, etc., these men and women spend more time to become a physician than most of us spent from kindergarten through high school. That's a long time. And then to engage in the practice of medicine and find out you really cannot focus on your patients totally and you really cannot practice medicine in the way that you think is best for your patients. I'm just going to hit a few highlights really fast. There's a link to the article in the handouts for today and I would encourage everyone to take a look at it. So, 55% of our nation's physicians say that they have negative morale. 78% say they have feelings of burnout. And part of that is due to increasing negative relations with hospitals that employ them. 80% say that they are at full capacity or already overextended. And depending on what state you're in, there's right now a 75 to a 153-day delay for an average new patient appointment in family medicine. 70% of the adult patients have unhealthy habits, such as excessive drinking, tobacco, obesity. 31% won't follow their treatment plan. And 58% of our physicians say that the payment for quality does not work and it has not improved. The work hours have decreased every year since 2012, and that equates to a 19,200 FTE loss in the physician world but many physicians are now capping or cutting Medicare and particularly Medicaid. The number one huge issue that is driving physicians to distraction are their EHRs. They don't function properly, they detract from patient interactions, and they are not efficient or effective. Regulatory burdens is number two, and loss of clinical autonomy is last. And the take-home from that is physician suicides are now one of the number one causes of death in this community, and I find that frightening. So, will our industry, will CMS, will the commercial payers take heed? Every year looks worse. It's not getting better. We're killing our physicians figuratively and literally. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Holly, very much for a very sobering report this morning on the state of health among physicians. That's going to be a wrap for our 356th edition of Talk in Tuesday. And Holly and I want to thank our panelists today, Terry Fletcher, Laurie Johnson, Dennis Jones, Timothy Powell, and Rhonda Tuller. 
And I want to thank you, Holly Louie, very much for sitting in today for Dr. Reamer, who's been on assignment. Thanks again. In the meantime, you can listen to us on all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts, anytime, anywhere, on any device. It's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And one more note uh, before we leave, I hope you're going to join me tomorrow for the live webcast on E&M Coding, Complex Coding and Scenarios. That's coming your way tomorrow, Wednesday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Remember, you can save 25 bucks when you enter the coupon code Tuesday. So register and click on the handout tab in today's Talk 10 Tuesday to register for that webcast. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.